Um, I'm going to welcome up Victoria. Um, Victoria is an honorary research fellow at the University of Exeter, a lecturer in global media practice at the University of Southampton, and a visiting lecturer of Bible and film at Sarum College, and a member of St. Nick's Church in Bristol. Um, she's here with us tonight. It's a bit of a trip, um, so <laughs> Come on up, Victoria. Let's welcome Victoria tonight. I'll drop this down for you. We're Thank delighted you. to have you with us, Victoria, tonight. Um, the floor is yours. Thank Go. you. Thank you. Um, I hadn't thought this skirt through. It's a bit of a, <laughs> a, bit of a trip hazard, but I made it. Um, good evening, everyone. Um, it's so great to be here. Um, I've been at all the talks, but I think I get a real privilege of like being with family, my own church family. So this is just such a wonderful um, time to be able to share. Um, yeah part of a little bit of what I do when I'm not at church. <laughs> um, so yeah, as Matt said, I'm Victoria, um, member of St. Nick's. Actually, Sunday was our one-year anniversary at St. Nick's. Um, so I'm here with my two brothers. Uh, you might know them, John and Victor. Um, and we moved in from Exeter, uh, which was where I had did you know, my PhD and stuff. So, um, so a little bit of background from, from me. Um, so like Matt said, I am currently uh, working as a lecturer at the University of Southampton, um, and I teach an MA course there in global media practice, and you might think global media theology. Um, the thing is, because a lot of my uh, research background is on biblical reception, um, i.e. how the Bible is being received, perceived, transmitted, and remembered, and that can be through various um, art forms um, and media, so hence that. And then Again, my other side job is, yeah, as a visiting lecturer in Bible and Film and Theology and Spirituality at Sarum College, um, and most recently, London School of Theology, so that should be fun. So tonight, we are looking at black theology, uh, an introduction to black theology. Um, and I'm going to kind of try to break it down and split it into two main session. So the first half will be just kind of understanding a bit of its history, a bit more of its origins, um, kind of the key kind of architects and key uh, figures that helped formulate black theology into an academic discipline um, and the journey that has been through. And um, the second part will also be looking at, again, we're looking at black Christology, what that means, um, and Again, looking within our context, black theology in Britain and what that will do. So if I can have the next slide, please. Um, so tonight's aims, the, we're going to be, like I said, looking through all that. But before we begin, I just want you to, I want to play you an audio. Um, I'm sure most of you might find it familiar, but it's a good starting point from where we're thinking about black theology um, and kind of its roots. So I'm going to play you the audio. Um, you may be able to recognize who the um, orator is um, and when it happened, but we'll just listen to a quick audio uh, now. I would like to live 
A long life, longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. Okay. I'm sure most people recognize that. Yep. That was uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King in 1968. April 3rd, it was his last sermon. Uh, I've been to the mountaintop, kind of reminiscent of the Exodus and Moses. Um, and that was his final speech uh, before he was assassinated the next day. And I played this because it kind of brings in some of the key um, kind of cornerstones through which black theology began to emerge. Um, civil rights movement, of course, and a lot of the um, kind of main principles were formulated from grassroots, right? Black preachers, black laymen, um, they were, you know, people that were in the church, from the church, a lot of them began to try and wrestle um, with the Bible and the kind of this idea of liberation, which we'll get to next. Next slide, please. Um, so I guess... Some people might have been intrigued, but I guess, you know, you can be thinking about this as you kind of progress through the rest of this evening. When you hear the words black theology, you wonder what kind of first words or what, you know, kind of images that might come to your minds. But as much as they are various um, definitions that can be applied to black theology, can we have the next slide, please? Sorry. Um, so Professor Anthony Reddy, who is uh, a leading scholar in black theology within the British context, he defines black theology as a self-conscious attempt to undertake rational and disciplined conversation about God and God's relationship to black people. In the world, we're looking at the past, the present, and imagining the future. And central to this is God's relationship with black people in the person of Jesus Christ, through which God is revealed. And we'll come onto that later this evening, why Jesus is so important when we're thinking about black theology. So of course, a core, a core part of black theology is of the obvious word black and what that means. So when we talk about black theology, we're thinking about an Afrocentricity. So Afrocentricity means that there's a focus that places emphasis on the cultural, historical, and social locations of people of African descent. And it decentralizes, so kind of removing the focus and the attention, so to speak, from a Eurocentric focus that is often dominated forms of kind of theological and philosophical discourse. So, Traditional forms of theology that we may be familiar with that have emerged from the West focused a detailed, thorough academic study of Christian doctrine to reach the goal of God's self-revelation. And in this vast history of the study, we use biblical studies from 
problems of authorship to the date of writing, historical forms, source criticisms, and engaging more with the text. We've had debates about the Trinity, if you were here two weeks ago, you know, Christology, women, and through the times of Augustine, the Reformation, the Counter-Reformation, St. Thomas Aquinas, all the great kind of fathers of faith, right up to modern theologians today. But again, what black theology asks is that with all this theology, all this knowledge, all this information, how is it relevant to the reality of people? How is it transformative to people's lives? So what black theology aims to do is that it moves kind of beyond this classical landscape that can sometimes feel very detached from the human soul. Black theology starts with the people. It starts with the specific kind of people, black people. And it tries to, as um, the South African theologian Basil Moore puts it, it understands as clearly as possible who these people are, what their life experiences are, and the nature and cause of their suffering. So now this, isn't, this does not mean that black theology kind of throws out all that classical um, traditions, but rather it kind of uses and engages with the classical traditions as a point of reference to engage with a more Afrocentric society, culture, and history. Next slide, please. Basil Moore says it, says it will ask of them, was our black society history and culture before the white man came so rotten, heathen that it had to be destroyed? It will question them of their judgment on the rich who oppressed the poor. It will ask of them what hope they hold out for the oppressed poor, what freedom means, and what the poor must do to throw off their chains. Black theology goes right into real life, flesh and blood lived experiences. Next slide, please. James Cone, a name will come up later in the evening. He writes in his book, 1975, God of the Oppressed. He says, for if the essence of the gospel is liberation of the oppressed from the social, political humiliation for a new freedom in Christ Jesus, and he puts there, he cannot see how anyone can read the scriptures and conclude otherwise. And if Christian theology is an explication of the meaning of that gospel for our time, must not theology itself have liberation as its starting point or run the risk of being at best idle talk and at worst blasphemy? Next slide. So two things are really critical when we're talking about black theology. Number one, it's liberation. Number two, it's praxis. So praxis just means a form, uh, the process of practicing, of an actual being you know, practical. So liberation theology um, in itself emerged in the 1960s and 70s um, in Latin America. So black theology is just another form of liberation theology. And, but liberation theology in itself was focusing on a Christ-like prophetic call to fight for social justice and ease the burdens of the suffering of the poor and the oppressed. Liberation theology views poverty, inequality, and oppression as social sins that must be addressed through social action. 
It is a theology of praxis, it's a theology of action. So rather than being a new theology, liberation theology was rather a new way of doing theology. So we have kind of the four founders of Gustavo Gusteres and Ignacio Eluscura, and as well as um, from the St. Andrews University in Britain today, Professor Mario Aguela, who are really doing a lot of key work in kind of liberation theologies, particularly um, from its roots in Latin America. So black theology is a theology of liberation. As with Latin American liberation theology, it is also a theology of praxis. Next slide, please. So without kind of disregarding the general history and remembrance of slavery, when we really go down to the nucleus of black theology, you can't not ignore the slavery era. So that period in which enslaved black peoples were oppressed, the transatlantic slave trade. And this is where the truth kind of first specks or seeds of black theology can be traced. It was in that oppression in which the enslaved Africans would generate a hope of liberation that was found in the knowledge and belief that God was indeed on their side. Black theology as a form of academic discourse started to emerge more so in the 1960s as a response, like we've heard, to the civil rights movement, um, which was you know, led, again, one of the famous um, leaders, such as Martin Luther King Jr., and the rise of the black power movement, um, which many actually had deemed as a almost resurrection, which was a year after Malcolm X uh, had, had his assassination. And so kind of these three the, the slavery, civil rights movement, the black power movement, again, was an Afrocentric focus on cultural identity of blackness. And this was central to the movement and their fight for racial equality. And it was kind of centered around really propagating that sense of black pride, black autonomy, and unity. And black theology in itself, it brings an academic critical thinking from a Christian perspective. However, the Christian aspect of black theology was quite problematic to the movement in that Christianity seemed to advocate this Western European manifestations of political, economical, social, and racial injustices towards black peoples. And again, this was reflected in the subjectation of um, African-American peoples, such as the Jim Crow laws, and of course the apartheid era uh, of black South Africans in South Africa. So there was a real call, call and a real urgency that Christianity had to be refocused and centralized, recentralized on a God that cared for the plight of the oppressed. Next slide, please. Now, there are some early educators and religious thinkers that were important. These are just some few from 1903, uh, Du Bois, W-E-B, -E, yeah, Du Bois. Uh, he wrote about this double consciousness, this idea of being black, living in a white space, and what that means, um, having this double identity. And again, the, some of the first generations of um, scholars, I've got a reading list as well at the end, in case anyone wants to like get a bit into this stuff. But, um, 
people like kind of Dwight Hopkins. He did a lot of work again on African-American um, liberation theology to Cornell West. Um, Jacqueline Grant as well. Her pianist work on womanist theologies, I'll get to that in a minute, uh, what womanist theologies mean, which is another branch of black theology. Uh, to, again, we have the famous James Cone, who is regarded as the father of black theology, um, and his kind of groundbreaking book, Black Theology and Black Power, uh, which was published in 1969. And Cone's work in itself was central to the formation of black theology as it started to challenge these Eurocentric um, traditional forms of theology. And it was, uh, this kind of Eurocentric theology was being critiqued for being complicit uh, in the oppression of black people. Next slide, please. So, methods and approaches. So these are some different kind of ways uh, and kind of approaches in which you uh, people engage with black theology. So again, the Bible, we'll get to that as well. The Bible is an important tool in how uh, we engage with these critical theologies in line with lived experiences. So lived experience is always a starting point of black theology. You always start from your own lived reality and your own kind of um, revelation of God, which is revealed in the Bible. So evidence of some great literature that has emerged, um, one cannot exist without the other. It is both theory and practice. Um, and it is important to recognize that black theology is a scholarly discipline alongside this model of liberative praxis. So some ways of doing that, again, we have contextual theology. Here, emphasis is placed on the importance of understanding one's social, cultural, and historical uh, context in light of the Bible, and translating that um, within the black experience. Another approach, as we've just mentioned, liberation theology, um, with origins in Latin America, again, focuses on uh, oppression and injustice, and concerns about having that kind of real transformative change. Then there's Afrocentric theology, again, decentralizing the Eurocentric forms of theology that have dominated so much of theological discourse. And womanist theology, um, again, womanist theology really came out from a lot of uh, critiques that even though we're talking about black theology, it was still very much from a male perspective. So womanist theology speaks about this thing called intersectionality. So it intersects um, kind of the issues of race, of gender, um, and class and sexuality as well in some cases. So womanist scholars such as Alice Walker, uh, Katie Cannon, Jacqueline Grant, Dolores Williams were really central to um, adding to the conversation of the black woman's experience, which is quite a nuanced way from the black male experience. Next slide, please. So, moving on, I was talking about the importance of the Bible, and the Bible in itself remains essential as a resource when engaging with black theology. It provides the means through which black people can find a feature of, of liberation embedded in their faith. And the Bible offers many examples, but possibly one of the most famous examples, if anyone can guess, is the Exodus, right? The explicit passage is used as a reflection 
regarding God's direct involvement to liberate his people. And the relationship between these scriptural texts and kind of the great uh, you know, spirituals of the slaves, such as Go Down Moses, um, enslaved Africans really established a relationship between the immediacy of their suffering and the realities of the Bible. And the Bible occupies the space in which black people can engage with it through their own experience. Next slide, please. So this engagement, I mean, Jamie did me a huge favor explaining hermeneutics last week, so I don't have to go over this with you. Um, but again, like we said, hermeneutics is the process through which this engagement goes, um, is encountered when you encounter the Bible within that space. And hermeneutics simply means like, you know, to interpret. And so the Bible holds meaning for truth. It stands as authority in scripture. And there's only one means through which one can understand the Bible is through the revelation in Christ. And this is a really key tenet of black theology, that God's revelation is made through the person of Jesus Christ. So, black theology is a Christ-centered movement. And through that, we get black Christology. So first, just real quick, Christology, study of Christ, Christo, you know, Christ, Messiah, logy, study of Christology, like simple, one-on-one. Um, and it's the study of Christ and the study of his personhood, which involves his incarnation, the, his work, the work of Christ, his, the nature of Christ, his identity. And so black Christology then explores all of that in relation to Jesus' own relationship with black people. This does not mean that it ignores other persons of the Trinity, but rather it highlights, like I've said, the importance of God revealing himself through the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is important because he's because of his suffering. So the suffering of Jesus Christ is the starting point through which black people that kind of were thinking and kind of engaging with these um, theological ideas, Jesus was a person of solidarity who stood in the midst of suffering with them. Next slide. James Cone, again, he writes this. He says, the black community is an oppressed community, primarily because of its blackness. Hence, the Christological importance of Jesus must be found in his blackness. If he's not black as we are, then the resurrection has little significance for our times. Indeed, if he cannot be what we are, we cannot be who he is. Our being with him is depending on his being with us in the oppressed black condition, revealing what is necessary for our liberation. So, disclaimer, we're not saying that Jesus is physically black. When he came in the incarnation, of course, he was a first century Palestinian Jew. We understand that. But rather, it's his identification with black people, his solidarity with the suffering, his solidarity with the oppression. A God who not only understands and knows their travails, but one who is also a participator with them, a divine sufferer, in the midst of the ongoing struggle. And this was a central motif 
to the Christ of the slaves, something that was quite opposite to the Christ of the slaveholders. So, two Christs, right? Who are these two Christs? So Kelly Brown Douglas, um, a women's theologian, she identifies these contradictions. She says that during slavery, the black Christ emerged in contradiction to the oppressive white Christ. The white Christ was the center of slaveholding Christianity, while the black Christ was the center of slave Christianity. The terms slaveholding Christianity and slave Christianity are not used to convey that either all slaveholders or slaves possessed the same religious beliefs. Instead, they signify that a number of slaveholders found a way to participate in the business of slavery without denouncing their Christian faith. Similarly, a number of slaves found a way to fight for freedom without surrendering their Christianity. As slaveholding Christianity and slave Christianity emerged and confronted each other, so did to the white and the black Christs. And the imagery of these two Christs are dependent on languages, right? So sometimes you can have representations of Jesus as the teacher, Jesus as the forgiver. It brings on an image that God is forgiven or maybe blind or to the injustice or injustice that's going on. And his incarnation image is often being represented as white. Whereas the language of black theology is often driven through imagery of the person of Jesus as a healer. Jesus as a victor, as a provider, as a liberator, which brings effects and activism through which Jesus fights and suffers for the oppressed. For the slaves, Jesus was a trusted companion who understood their pain and sorrows. And this was evidenced in the slave songs, the slave spirituals, such as, were you there where they crucified my Lord? I don't know if you, some people might be familiar with these kind of hymns, implying that they were still there. Next slide. The idea that the freedom that Jesus offered was attainable only in heaven. For many others who rejected and produced a slave religion, the freedom that Jesus offered was readily attained here on earth. We see examples of this in the preacher, such as Nat Turner, who successfully uh, led the uh, slave rebellion, Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman, and many other kind of contemporary examples of individuals such as Martin Luther King or Nelson Mandela, who have sacrificed themselves in one way or another for the greater purpose of liberation. Jesus stands as a figure that is in partnership, companionship, and friendship with black people. Okay, you still with me? Okay, good. So <laughs> we have kind of covered the terms in terms of what black theology is. If you don't get anything, at least just remember this bit. Black theology is God's relationship with black people revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. That's a big kind of overall summary. And so much of, again, moving on, much of what... Um, the scholarship of black theology, which has emerged from the United States. Next slide, please. There has been a growing discipline in other contexts, such as South Africa, the Caribbean, and of course, right here in Britain. Uh, 
and we have black, some great black British theologians such as Robert Beckford um, and Anthony Reddy. And black British theology draws from aspects of black Pentecostalism um, and much of the scholarship with such as Beckford, he takes an interdisciplinary approach, which just means using um, kind of resources from other disciplines such as music and art and culture. So Beckford uses a lot of uh, music actually as a means to understand black British identity in relation to God or God talk, uh, as we like to say. And um, others again, such as Anthony Reddy, he looks at kind of the systemic frameworks of racism, particularly in the context of Britain, um, and looking at racism in terms of in Christianity, in the church, and education, um, which subsequently leads again to a lot of work that's been going on currently in the black theology field in Britain on decolonizing and decolonization. And we'll get to that in a bit as well. So black theology in Britain has to come to terms with having faith in the Bible, understanding the Jesus of that Bible, he was also the risen Christ, and reimagining the church as a place for liberative practice and transformative change. Black theology in Britain is still very much wrapped up in what I kind of call the spirit of empire. It still holds within this British context, and Anthony Reddy states there needs to be a counter-imperial form of discourse and practice that challenges a form of British Christianity, which has straddled most of the world. Next slide. So part of that, again, is decolonization. And what that means is identifying these colonial systems, these structures, these relationships, and working to challenge them and destabilize them. Part of that decolonization process is how we understand and do theology. Decolonizing our theology involves deconstructing part of that history that has been built upon the logistics of colonialism and the spirit of empire. It's being concerned with how God talk interacts with our perception of human identity and how knowledge of what it means to be a black human constructed and understood. So, Thinking about, again, this form of kind of 19th century British white evangelical Christianity and how much of effect it still has, um, part of my research evidence was um, I actually did field work in South Africa and Britain. And I actually, I'm going to play you these two clips. So I played uh, two parallel versions of Jesus. One is a very, he's not white, but he's kind of like, anyone that is past the brown mark of the Mediterranean that kind of like try to make Jesus look, you know, a bit less white, but not brown enough, kind of in between. Um, they did a good job, they did, they did a good job. Um, and the other film is a complete opposite, uh, South African film, and the film is called Son of Man, and it places Jesus within a contemporary South African context more specifically a Xhosa context. So Xhosa, they're like an ethnic group um, in South Africa. And the Jesus in the Xhosa film is everything you don't expect. He's black, he's bald, and he's beardless. And 
And, um, and it is a bit of a like, a, oh, okay, hi, Jesus. Um, and, and, and it was really interesting to see the audience reaction to that. And um, part of that fieldwork was I had um, people in Britain watch both. I had people in South Africa. And South Africa was really interesting because I actually had also people watch it as well. And it was interesting to gauge their reaction to seeing that. Um, and again, part of this, I guess, is kind of understanding the blackness identification of Jesus and formulating this sense and the struggle the struggle still exists like when they say the struggle is real it's real um and and you see that kind of evidenced in some of the field work so i'm going to play so actually so the first the two clips um we had a bit of a technical issue with the first clip it's supposed to be um a voiceover so the first clip is from a a film called The Lumo Project, um, and it's actually a series of four films in which they have filmed each of the Gospels, the canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they've narrated over it verbatim. Um, and the sense was that it could be dubbed into many languages. I think they're in about 100 languages now. Um, but just imagine, even though you weren't here the narration, just imagined a very received pronunciation accent with King James Version over the top, if that makes sense. Um, so we'll play the first one, and then we'll play the next one afterwards, which is Son of Man. And they're both crucifixion scenes. So some people might be familiar um, you know, with the story anyway. So it's a scene of the crucifixion. Um, and just again, a disclaimer. Sorry, I'm explaining a lot, because there's a lot to understand. They're just clips, so it's a bit and need to frame some context around that. Um, the second clip that we're going to watch straight after, the Son of Man film, uh, the crucifixion is based after, during the apartheid era. So during South Africa times, um, I don't know, maybe people might know Steve Biko, who was an anti-apartheid leader. So the person of Jesus is actually framed after the person of Steve Biko. Um, and during this time of apartheid, the government at the time had these um, things called disappearances where they would take people who were seen as threats and they would just disappear, which actually, which means that they were probably arrested, put in prison, tortured, killed some of them, died, and put in a shallow grave. So the crucifixion of Jesus is reimagined as a disappearance in which Jesus is taken, he's shot, and put in a shallow grave in which Mary, his mother, is told about where he's buried, she puts him on a makeshift cross for, as a way for the whole community to see what has happened to her son. So it's a bit um, rogue, <laughs> uh, but it, 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 it really does reflect, um, again, bringing the gospel within a context, um, and you, we can kind of understand that a bit more. So I will keep quiet for about 10 minutes uh, as we play the first bit. Thank you. Great. So those were, yeah, two um, representations, very different from each other. Um, and it's funny because I actually also interviewed the writer of, of Son of Man, and um, she said, oh, they really wanted to make Jesus as, you know, in, with, in relation to their own culture and their own people. But, yeah, it had the opposite effect, actually. Um, I won't tell you what the results were. I mean, okay, I'll tell you. I mean, you could just get my book when it comes out. I'll tell you then. Um, but I'll, I'll let you in on what happened. Um, so it was interesting because each group, both in the UK and South Africa, 
they, the one that was the most familiar with them was actually badly received. So the UK group kind of hated the first one, said it was really clinical. Um, they feel like they've seen it before. Um, you know, kind of the kind of what you know what to expect. But they absolutely loved Son of Man. Whereas in South Africa, complete opposite again. Um, absolutely hated Son of Man. Felt that this is not the gospel. They were like, why is Jesus black? Um, and it was really shocking, yeah, because you would think even some of the Osa people, Osa people um, would kind of relate to it, but actually they much rather preferred the first one. Um, and it's interesting because um, they expressed, the South African group, for example, that the, con the contextualization of the Gospels in Osa culture um, was problematic. Whereas the Lumo project, both in its style and the characterization of Jesus, uh, was again deemed much more kind of worthy of what the gospel should be. Um, and I, again, kind of wonder, you know, this kind of subconsciousness in which there's a certain kind of level of hierarchy in terms of how Jesus cannot be represented in a black body, regardless. Next slide, please. Um, like I said, I met with Andiswa Kidema, and this is what she said. She said, given South Africans' history, in light of South Africans' history and the context in which um, we're speaking about, people are still behaving as if there's this master. She says as if there's this white master, but they're still living in a past where when they see a white person, they still call him boss. And her statement uh, really kind of shows to what extent the apartheid experience, this live extent, um, has permeated into this kind of cultural subconsciousness. She said that it could be that this idea that a black Jesus, this, if Jesus is supposed to be a person who exudes authority, a person of power, then Jesus should be white. It's an image that continues within this neo-colonial landscape. And many black Christians are still very much invested in a form of 19th century kind of white evangelical Christianity that has a lot of its thinking and absorbing the Bible is still informed by these Eurocentric ideas. And so, next slide. It's sometimes difficult to remember that Christianity is a global religion. It has evolved through various cultures and languages and communities. It's celebrated in a variety of ways. And black theology simply just tells a new story through the vantage point of lived experiences and seeks to understand the God of the Bible within this setting through the revelation of his son, Jesus Christ. So I'm going to wrap up now, but last slightly some key points that um, I think is really important for us to remember. So number one, it highlights the importance of the black experience and how that forms an understanding of God. It strongly believes in the Bible as scripture, as the authority-driven word of God, and thus it aims to make the Bible relevant to the oppression and suffering of black peoples. It offers a critical lens to the bias of a Eurocentric theology that many have, black theologians and scholars, have accused of being complicit in the fight for social justice. 
and liberation in all forms of oppression. Black theology relies, like we've said along throughout this course of the evening, is a theology of praxis. It relies on heavily on action, community action. It enables the concept that there is a God who is a God of the, on the side of the oppressed, and he is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And rather than thinking of theology as a new, of black theology as like a new theology, rather think of it as a new way of doing theology. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you so much for tonight. We thank you, Lord, that you are a loving Father, that you open your arms to all those who come to you. We thank you, Lord, that you have revealed yourself through your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that you give us, Lord, new ways, Lord, of, of getting to know more of you, understand more of your nature. I pray, Lord, um, we thank you for everyone that's come tonight. We pray, Lord, for everyone, Lord, that um, will later on hear this, Lord, that, yeah, it will just be a way that your word will be revealed in new ways and new understanding. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. So um, we're going to do the kind of questions bit. So my questions are on the PowerPoint, but I didn't think this through it properly. So they're on two PowerPoints, but you can take a picture maybe of the first bit. Um, and they're kind of split into two because the first questions are kind of more the theory side of it and the second part are the film. So you can take, they'll be up um, anyway, like in between the two. So discussing your group and then we will kind of feedback um, after 15 minutes, so I'm told. Great. Thank you. Great. Let's, um, should we draw our discussion just to a close? And I uh, would love to uh, have some Q&A um, with Victoria and maybe some reflections as well on some of the questions and the discussions you'd be having um, to the questions on the screen. So... Um, who can I send around? Victor, do you want to be a, like a roving reporter with a mic? Is that all right? For your sister, is that all right? <laughs> um, thanks, pal. Uh, so, uh, yeah, any um, thoughts, observations, things that stuck out to you? It doesn't have to be a question. It could just be something that you want to, um, yeah, just uh, say thank you to Victoria for highlighting. Or I don't know what it may be. It could be a question. Um, the floor is, is yours. So any, any thoughts, observations, questions? That you'd love to ask, please raise your hand now. Yeah, Franklin, go. Hi, Victoria. Thank you. That was that was very insightful. Uh, a new a new topic to think about. Um, I guess it's quite simple. You were talking about decolonization and all that. So, um, don't know if without going too in depth, could you like give us maybe examples of what that is in practice in today's world and the controversies around that? Yeah, can you hear me? Great. Um, yeah, thank you so much for your question. Yeah, so decolonization, what that means practically. So a lot of that has been, in terms of in the theology world, looking at um, systems that have been set up in place 
and trying to destabilize that. So the first thing is recognizing that there's a problem. So we kind of start off with this process of decolonization, uh, and there's a few kind of like practical steps that we uh, try to address. So first is recognizing there's a problem, um, naming that problem, and uh, identifying what the problem is. So parts of that, if, for example, I know some people that can do this in schools, I've done this in schools um, and in workplaces, and recognizing mostly probably forms of empire which can take on many forms, but one of the most popular forms is, again, in terms of you know, discrimination or racism or um, how that manifests in different ways. Um, part of that process, again, of decolonization is uh, understanding the history, right? So when we talk about decolonization, a lot of it we're talking about, of course, from the word colonization, which again has many ways, but mainly deals with forms of the empire, the former empire, and um, kind of the ideologies and um, kind of structures that are, um, yeah, can still permeate in a lot of our society without us realizing it. Um, so again, recognizing the problem, identifying, the, knowing the history, and re, not reintroducing, but rather reflecting on that history and understanding that they are different kind of epistemologies, so that just means other ways of knowing, um, and introducing that within whatever kind of context that you may be working on. So like I said, um, I've worked with a few kind of schools and spe specifically um, some RE uh, departments and when they think, how can we decolonize you know, the teaching of Christianity in RE? And part of that is um, kind of introducing uh, kind of global perspectives rather than a very kind of narrowing kind of 19th century empire way of thinking, but rather introducing different perspectives, introducing uh, different epistemologies, um, and understanding that th there, is, there are other ways of learning and there are other ways of knowing things. And um, yeah, again, it's just part of that process of decolonizing. It isn't something that happens overnight. We recognize that it isn't something that you can just do and say, right, this is, this is a kind of go-to problem, but rather it's an ongoing process and people need to be willing and people need to be willing to be uncomfortable um, as that process goes on. So, yeah. Uh, you can, I mean, there's lots of resources as well that have, are available in terms of, depending on, again, the context you're working with, um, that have a lot of really, really clever people have put together kind of things for workplaces um, and schools alike, uh, and universities as well. Again, some of the work I do with uh, universities and decolonization in higher education, which, of course, universities are a great example of, again, spirits of empire that still... Uh, uh, in those walls, and part of that is again just destabilizing these these concepts and these ideologies that still uh, persist. Um, yeah, Brilliant. I hope that kind of answers. Thank you. Uh, who's next? Who's next? Raise your hands, Ruth. Yeah. Um, I had a bit of a question about like art and imagery, and whether you think that. Um, obviously, we have this very whitewashed Jesus, and in a sort of Afrocentric um, community, is there more preference to presenting Jesus as black and in a black cultural setting, or do you think there's still preference toward this sort of Eurocentric Jesus? Yeah. And do you think there's a way we could be 
amplifying more of that artwork, for example, I'm thinking about the massive painting behind <laughs> that curtain. Yeah. Is it yeah. that it doesn't exist yet and it's emerging, or is it that it's just been oppressed? Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, so, I mean, the white Jesus image has been so much more commercialized and globalized, hence its dominance, right? And, um, and it has been the more preferred image, even within black um, spaces, just because I think, I mean, the, you know, the very first, you know, Jesus film you watch or the, you know, kind of the poster you get in the, like an evangelical tract is often of a white man. And I, they are other representations of Jesus that exist, but like you said, they have been kind of suppressed because of the dominance of this one image that we all have. And, you know, part of that, again, is due to, you know, the Renaissance. Of course, we get a lot of the films and we get a lot of, you know, the, the traditions of Renaissance paintings, which I think a lot of people fail to understand, again, Renaissance paintings, not saying that, oh, you can't use Renaissance paintings. That is one context through which people saw Jesus, right, as a white, they, if these were white Europeans, drawing Jesus within their own context, and that is, it's allowed, but it's just over time, because of the dominance of, you know, we can say of whiteness and white supremacy, that image has continued to dominate, and it has dominated so much that when you take the image, you know, to other places, you know, in the global south, for example, there is still very much a preference to the white image. And part of that, like I was talking about in the South African context, is reflective of how much whiteness is ubiquitous, which means it's just, it's everywhere. So we see it so much in advertising, you see it so much in, um, so much of media is still being represented by whiteness. And that still permeates with Jesus. His affinity to whiteness is still very much dominant. Uh, and that, again, is still, like you said, it's still very much within the subcultures of, of, of black cultures and black communities. Um, the earliest depictions of Jesus, somehow we have all forgotten, were from North Africa, like, you know, uh, Taido mentioned a couple weeks ago, you know, Christianity in terms of its theology started in North Africa, and the early depictions of Jesus were seen with him having much more brown skin. But again, empire, whatever you want to call it, has dominated uh, you know, much of the global south in terms of this is the image. We can think about missionaries to Africa, um, you know, in the early kind of 18th, 19th centuries when we, you know, what is the image they're bringing? It is still that kind of white image of Jesus. So, you know, there is still a lot of kind of reformation work, so to speak, to be done in terms of, um, yeah, recognizing other representations and celebrating other representations of Jesus that um, continue to be made. So, yeah. Great. Thank you. Thanks for the question, Ruth. Um, who's next? Yes. Come on, run, Victor, run. run. <laughs> um, so I sort of know people that they view Christianity as an actual tool of empire, that it was a way mm -hmm. to get sort of, the, uh, you know, they sort of say it's a way to get us to think like you, um, and it kind of, it's a way of getting rid of our culture. How... How would I respond to that? Should, should I respond to that? Like, I'm not sure how I can respond yeah. to that. Yeah, um, like I said, I think it's hard for us to keep remembering how Christianity is a global religion. So part of that is recognizing much of Christianity has been based on one frame. 
uh, we've always looked through it through one lens, which has always been more specifically the lens of empire. But actually, rather than, I think the best way to approach that is actually to just go back to the history. The history is there. It's just been not used, it's not been utilized. But there is a history of Christianity growing, um, you know, like we said, like, you know, from parts of North Africa spreading. And even think about the even, you know, even thinking about the, the global resurgence of Christianity in the global south, it is immense if you see what's happening in, in Asia, in parts of Africa, you know, in Southeast Asia. Christianity is a growing religion um, and it continues to be relevant in the lives of people. So the argument can be made, oh, Christianity was used as a tool for empire. Yes, it was, but that is only one tool. Um, if you think about it, I mean, I. I, I I think about it as a pencil. For example, you have a pencil, which is a tool that can be used for drawing, can be used for writing. It can be used for stabbing your dog in the eye. <laughs> um, do you know what I mean? <laughs> it's, it's, it's still a pencil. So Christianity is not the problem. The problem is human beings, really, um, and how human beings use Christianity as tools to you know, satisfy their own agendas and their own desires. So I think again, recognizing the whole framework of where Christianity actually sits in the global scale of the history of the world, rather than looking at just it from one island <laughs> uh, in one period of time. Yeah. That's great. That's, that's brilliant. So helpful. Um, who's next? Any other questions, thoughts? Come on. Yes, Jonah. Run. <laughs> Thank you, Victoria. It was, it was great. It was just it was really lovely to hear. Just as like a different element of theology. And from the sounds of it, it sounds like quite a young theology. If it's if the father of it was perhaps publishing mm. books in 1969. Is so my question would be, is there is there an element of black theology that is still being uncovered, or are there modern black theolo theologians that are delving into something that hasn't been seen yet? And what, what might the new I guess revelations be mm. in this, or what, what's the new word on the street in mm. black theology? Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, I, so I think because black theology is such a grassroots experience, I, you know, it, you know, we can argue it has been going on much more longer than the sixties. But I think the best way to say, as a scholarly discipline, in terms of being articulated into, you know, monographs into literary uh, resources, it is still very much, yeah, very young compared to, you know, kind of, you know, systematic theology or kind of other forms of of, of theology. Um, in terms of, you know, black theology, they are, I mean. Where's my reading list? <laughs> um, I mean, there's some great kind of modern theologians, like I've mentioned people like Anthony Reddy um, in Britain, who's done extensive, extensive work. Um, there's a black theology journal, which actually brings in kind of the latest um, uh, kind of scholarship uh, and work that's going on in the field of black theology. So, you know, if you really want to know what's kind of new and happening in that, um, Black Theology Journal, the International Journal, is a great place to kind of start. Um, again, like, like I was mentioning, things like womanist theology, which is, again, becoming a much more growing um, field uh, rapidly. We've got so many people, such as Kelly Brown Douglas, Dolores Williams, um, who 
are kind of integrating, bringing in uh, new conversations on, again, the black woman experience and what that means uh, in terms of in relation to God um, as well. So there is a lot of kind of ongoing work. Uh, it's really exciting um, just to see how, you know, people are coming to engage with black theology um, a bit more and kind of understand the new kind of methods and approaches that can be used to, yeah, the ever-growing field of theology because, um, you know, theology is our, it's, it's our way of, of, of God talk, really. It's, it's us talking about God and uh, black theology is just another kind of lens and pathway through which we can carry on this God talk as well. So, yeah. So Black Theology Journal is a great place to start to kind of get some new kind of um, scholarship that's happening. Yeah. Brilliant. Did you have your reading list on one of the slides? I, um, I don't know if I did, but... Is there a reading list? There is not, okay. There isn't, but if anyone wants to... Come and I've snap got, um, Yeah, I've got some stuff it. on kind of introduction to black theology. Um, so, of course, like books like James Cone, Black Theology and Black Power is a great place to start. Um, and as well as Anthony Reddy's uh, Introduction to Black Theology uh, as well as another great place to start. And I've got some stuff on black theology in Britain if you want to know more about the British context and stuff about womanist theology um, as well, which, again, yeah. Brilliant. Um, can I ask the last question really quickly? Yeah. Uh, tell us about your book. Oh, my book. In, in 30 seconds. And, in 30 and, seconds, uh, yeah. yeah. What, what it's about and how we can read it. Get yeah. Yeah, uh, so my book is called Imagining Jesus. It's a play on imaging and imagining. Um, and it is uh, my PhD thesis, which has been transformed into a book. And it's looking, again, at cross-cultural uh, audience responses uh, and filmmakers' responses. So I also, because I interviewed the filmmakers of the films that we watched to get their intentions, and really just understanding, it's very contextual in terms of understanding how our context influences how we uh, encounter uh, theology, encounter the Bible, um, and film is being used as a lens to kind of ginger that uh, interpretation. So um, I'm, you know, go through different themes such as fidelity to the text. So looking at how closely these films are related to the text and why that matters for audiences and why that matters for filmmakers. Uh, and again, another theme I look at is, of course, the obvious one, the ethnicity of Jesus. Uh, and again, you know, the importance of that. Uh, and again, looking at music. Um, uh, because my, my first degree was actually music and theology, so I couldn't ignore music, really. Um, but looking again at music in the film and how music carries the narrative, um, and the final uh, theme I look at in my book is gender. Uh, it's available pre-order on Bloomsbury. It's been published by Bloomsbury later this year and on Amazon, so it should be out soon. So, Brilliant. yeah. <laughs> and I think if you're the email this morning, the title of it is in the email, so you can get a hold of it uh, by searching. Um, should we give Victoria one last round of applause? Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, Victoria is just going to pray for us as we finish tonight. Let's just close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much again for this evening. We thank you for this wonderful space and time. We thank you so much for everyone that's been here tonight. Um, yeah, Lord, we just pray, Lord, that uh, be with everyone as they go home tonight. Um, and Lord, just let there be a stirring of your spirit um, in everyone's hearts uh, to this evening. We thank you uh, so much again for um, just for us to be able to come here and encounter you um, in a new and different ways. In Jesus' name, amen.